Hello all and welcome to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast where we talk about different orthopedic topics. My name is Dr. Cole and myself and Dr. Fitz host this podcast and today we have a good episode in store for you all. We're actually talking about pediatric hip pain and you'll see for this episode we kind of go through and talk about the differences between skiffy or slip capital femoral epiphyses versus leg calves Percy's disease and we actually have one of my attendings, Dr. Tony Gonzalez, who will be giving our talk today. Uh, a little bit more about him. He received his medical degree from the University of Alabama School of Medicine in Birmingham and completed his residency training at Jackson Memorial Hospital slash University of Miami in Florida. He then completed a fellowship in pediatric orthopedics at Scottish Rite Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, and he currently serves as the department head of pediatric orthopedics at Children's Hospital in New Orleans. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Welcome to another amazing episode with the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We are so glad to have you back here with us again today. We have a great topic in store for you, and we have an uh, even even better guest that, that's with us today, Dr. Joseph Gonzalez. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. How are y'all today? We are doing great. I'm still uh, you know, pulling all the weight for little Cody, but besides that, we're, we're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's good. Got jokes. Starting, yeah. starting off early. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I always had to throw a few in there when we, when we come on air. Um, but, you know, I think we have a good talk on for today for it's something different for us. We're doing uh, pediatrics today. It's going to be, uh, you know, I guess you could say pediatric hip pain, but more specifically, Skiffy versus uh, Perthy. So we're going to talk about that today with Dr. Gonzalez. I'm so glad that he's here. Uh, but before we get too far, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit better. So uh, Dr. Gonzalez, uh, this is just one of the questions we have for you. Uh, what made you go into academic medicine? Uh, I've always really liked being involved with teaching and interacting with the residents. Uh, I mean, one of the things about interacting with residents is y'all keep us learning. You always ask questions and we don't always know the answers. And so it makes us constantly keep up, up to date in our field. We have to go to the courses so we can be up to date and teach y'all the best we can. And so I think y'all are as much a benefit to me as, as hopefully we are to you. And so that's, that's kind of the drive. And I've always liked to teach. My mom was a teacher for 30 years. And so it just kind of fit what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I like it. That's great. Um, and so the next question we have for you is, you know, just like you say, you work with a lot of residents. I know you work with some fellows as well. What qualities or characteristics do you see in good or excellent fellows uh, slash residents? Like what are some of the things you're like, okay, this, this guy or this lady is going to be a great, surgeon you know in the future what are some of those qualities that you see I, I think there's two or three that really stand out one is they're proactive in their education and so instead of calling you on the phone and saying hey i have this here what do you want me to do with it they they've already read about it or looked up or thought about it and they call you and say i have this femur fracture it's in a eight-year-old uh it looks like it needs elastic nails are you okay with us uh, boarding it and doing it tomorrow? You, that means you've already 
they put some insight into it. Uh, you've already thought about the management. You've thought about your differential diagnosis. And so when you see people do that, you know they're going to be successful later on because they're already a step ahead of, of uh, some of the peers. I think the second thing is uh, being educatable, you know, and I, I am sure that my mentors in residency will say that I sometimes wasn't the best at this. But when you're when you're given uh, criticism or advice, you take it to heart and move on. I think the last thing is that you can learn from somebody else's mistakes. You don't have to make every mistake. You pay attention in the rounds. You look at other people's uh, potential complications or complications, and you don't have to make those mistakes yourself. If you can learn from everybody else's mistakes, you'll grow so much faster. And so I think those three things are probably the most important things. Yeah, that is so true, Dr. Gonzalez. That's something uh, I, I try my best to pay attention when I, I happen to be maybe, you know, second or third assist on, on a case. I, I'm looking to see kind of what, what other people are doing and that's, that's, that's good and bad. Uh, so definitely, definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, yeah, for, and, and I would just include, include too, you know, always uh, watch when your staff struggle. I mean, we hate to struggle and it. I mean, it's a little embarrassing. It's a little frustrating, but watch what they're doing and, and ask them to think out loud. Hey, can you go through what you're thinking right now? What's going on? How are you getting through this? And that'll really help you out in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many times, like you say, I, I really think, you know, there's, there's very few cases where there's absolutely no struggle. I feel like uh, you go in, you have a plan, and something is always just a tad bit off from what you think, what you were thinking in, at first, and that's kind of, you know, why they they pay us to do what we do. But uh, absolutely, you know, being as being like a junior resident and seeing some of my 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 attending staff when they are kind of struggling, they they kind of get into their own zone sometimes, and every once in a while, they can get past what I'm you know, what I may think they're actually looking for. And like you say, it will be much more helpful to say, hey, kind of what, what, you, what you're thinking or what's, you know, what's causing, you know, what you think is causing the issue. And every once in a while, maybe you can even throw out a, a helpful idea that can help get uh, everybody over the hump. Yeah, absolutely. That happens more often than you think because you'll throw something out there that you may think is not important, but it triggers us to think about it in a different way. Also, when y'all ask questions in those spots, you may get some pushback. Yeah. But really what it makes us do is slow down and take a breath and breather. And so it helps us out as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I actually think that this particular field is one that you can uh, work pretty hard, but I, I, th I think you can also have a little, uh, you know, play hard at, to, to some extent. So our last question is, do you have any interest outside of medicine, Dr. Gonzalez? Uh, so mostly, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much, gave up a lot of stuff just because I think family is important. And so while my kids are young or in grade school and middle school and high school, it's my, I feel it's my job to when I'm not working to be with them. And so I do like to exercise. I used to work out a lot. Now I run somewhat. Uh, I like to be in the outdoors, whether it's hiking or fishing or doing other activities, but you know, the focus is on them for now. There'll be a time when they have their family that I'll get to refocus back on, uh, some of that stuff, but you know, right now it's for them. Yeah, I think it's important, definitely, to be able to focus on family and you know spend that time and take care of them. You know, we all make sacrifices for this field of medicine, and you know, family is important. Um, 
So let's go ahead and transition and switch into the case slash the talk of the day. And we want to talk about kind of pediatric hip pain. And we just have a general case um, of uh, for a patient and typically how somebody would come to the clinic and they would kind of like to walk through what we would look for and what we would see on like physical exam and how we how do we work this up. So say, for example, this is almost kind of what happened last week, but say, for example, a 12-year-old uh, male comes into your office with a limp. He complains of hip pain, and he was referred to you by the primary care doc. He said that this limp's been going on for a couple of weeks. Uh, what, kind of where do we go from here? You know, what are, what are some important things that we need to be on the lookout for when we're t- taking a history, when we're doing a physical exam? You know, what, what do we start at? Sure. So the first thing you do, and I, I try to do it, and we're busy sometimes, you don't always get to do it, is always watch the patient walk in. You'll get a good idea of how much discomfort they're in by how they, by, by how they walk in. And so if they uh, walk in and they have a true antalgic gait, then you know something's more significant going on. If they're walking in smoothly, no issue, then you know that everything's pretty good at that point. Uh, you have a little bit more time to kind of do what you need to do. Uh, the things I'm thinking about are how long can, can they ambulate? Can you do the things you want to do? It's different if the guy is our lady is able to play sports, run around, play, do everything they want. But, you know, they have occasional pain. It's much different than I can't do anything and it hurts when I walk. And so you just want to kind of in the initial period kind of nail down that severity. And so it's going to make you move more towards uh, uh, working it up faster or slower, whether you want to involve physical therapy or not. Uh, you want to look at their, especially with uh, these uh, kids, you want to look at their body habitus. When you walk in, ask them where the pain is. Is it in their groin or the top of their thigh? Sometimes they'll even stay down in their distal knee. Uh, also, it tells you if it's on the outside of their hip, then that's more either a rotational abnormality with IT band irritation, but almost all the stuff we're talking about with uh, Skiffy and Perthes are going to be in the hip or, or down into the thigh. And so that's kind of what I look at when I first walk into the room. And, and on history, you know, do we ever, or does the nurse or anybody typically get a history of like any me- metabolic um, uh, diseases that they may have or not disease or conditions, you know, like hypothyroidism, et cetera? They, we do, and we'll look at their med sheet and kind of think about and look through it. It's it's, it's a lot less common, even though it's a pretty significant uh, incidence of those type of questions on the OIT or boards. It's not as common as you would think. The other thing that you really want to think about is history of asthma, severe asthma with steroid use, or a previous history of uh, a blood cancer like leukemia or lymphoma or something like that, because almost always they get... Uh, chemotherapy along with steroids. And so you want to ask about that as well. Okay. And you, I think we even hit on a lot of high yield things just, just that fast. And uh, one thing that you mentioned that I think is uh, good to remember in both when you're taking care of kids as well as adults, uh, just because there, someone is having thigh pain or knee pain, it could actually be something much more proximal, like a hip issue. Um, just because that's something that we, we see often, you know, somebody's actually complaining about their knee, you find out it's their hip, or vice versa, they're complaining about their hip, and sometimes the, the pain may be more so towards, like you say, in the thigh or in the knee. So it's good to keep that in mind when, you, when you're doing your, uh, 
your workup for these patients. Um, and since we, oh, yes, sir. And, and, and the only thing else I would say is you want everything to make sense. Like I, I know one patient we had uh, came in with an MRI with a meniscal tear, but whenever you touched the leg, he just about came up off the table. And as y'all know, most meniscal tears, they can do most activities. And so something wasn't right. He was complaining about knee pain, only knee pain. But when you moved his leg, he about came off the table and it was an acute slip. And so if, if something doesn't seem right, always push your exam, push your history, push something a little farther until it does seem right. Yes, sir. And since we, since we know this topic is because, you know, for hip pain is very uh, it's very broad. And even in a pediatric setting, it could be a whole host of different things. But since we know we're talking about Skiffy versus Perthes, um, what just on their presentation on things like their age, their, you said their body habitus, uh, the, the way they walk, and, and, and even some of the physical exam findings, can you tell us some of the differences that you'll look for just right off the back uh, when you're trying to, trying to determine between these two different pathologies? So let's start off with Skiffy. Skiffy is going to be a little bit in the older in the age group. You're going to think about 10 and above. Uh, so they're going to come in. They're going to have more of a significant limp. They're usually restricting their activities pretty significantly. They have an externally rotated gait when they walk in. Uh, on exam, they have pain with internal rotation. And if you, you know, as you start doing more and more with the history, you always want to document your, per your pertinent negatives. And so no pain with internal rotation should be documented in any patient that has knee pain as well in this age group. So with Skiffy, they're going to have pain with internal rotation and they're going to have obligate external rotation with flexion of the hip. And so if you start getting groin, thigh, knee pain, worse with activity uh, in a larger kid who's 10 to 13 years of age, uh, and they have an externally rotated gait, pain with internal rotation, and external rotation with hip flexion, then more than likely it's going to be skiffy. For Perthes, it's going to be uh, typically 7, 6, 7 to 10, 11-year-old. The older they get, the worse they do. It's just one, and the younger they are, the better they do. Uh, it's going to be either in the older group, have some kind of medication history that leads you to Perthes, are in the younger group, they're typically smaller kids that are hyper and run around a lot. Uh, they, you typically come in with a limp, uh, with increased activity. They're sore at night and they're also sore first thing in the morning. When they wake up in the morning, they're stiff. Uh, what happens is as they increase activity, they get a little fluid in their hip and when they sleep at night, it tends to stiffen up on them. The other thing that you'll notice is they tend to guard with internal and external rotation of the hip and abduction. And so as you're doing your range of motion of the hip, they'll kind of catch you a little bit as you try to go through it. And so it's not a smooth motion. And so anytime I take a kid through a range of motion, you take the unaffected side, and it should feel the same as the affected side. If it doesn't, they're guarding a little bit. And so that kind of just triggers me that, hey, maybe they have a little effusion in their hip and we need to work it up a little farther. The interesting thing is sometimes with Perthes, you won't pick it up on the initial x-ray because the x-ray lags behind the symptoms by about two months. And so if you have a strong suspicion that it may be Perthes, you educate the family about it, but then you bring them back in about two months, check the x-rays again. And a lot of times you'll pick it up then. 
Oh, that that was excellent. Just excellent. So I think we you touched on, you know, for Skiffy, they're going to be really externally rotated. They have that obligate external rotation when you try to flex them up. Uh, we spoke about, you know, how leg calves are a little bit younger. They'll have pain in the morning. Uh, they have pain with internal and external rotation of that hip as well. And you actually you briefly touched on it, but you actually went right into the next thing that we'd be asking about is what uh, what sort of imaging, you know, what 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 sort of imaging are we getting for these patients and what do we look for on the uh, images? Like what are some of the things that are going to point us towards one thing versus the other? So for Skiffy, you're going to all just get an AP and, uh, and lateral or AP and frog leg lateral of the pelvis. You have to be very careful. If you really are suspicious for Skiffy, you should always include a frog leg lateral because there's something called Klein's line, which I'm sure y'all know that's the line on the superior border of the uh, femoral neck with on the AP. And I've seen a number of mild slips uh, where people have gotten just APs and Klein's line was intact. The, the pipsis touched Klein's line. And, but when you put them into a frog leg, they have uh, a slip. And so you always wanna make sure you get that frog leg lateral. And there's, you're gonna measure something called Southwick's angle, which is a line that goes down the, uh, uh, or the physis, and then a line that uh, goes down the shaft and or 90 degrees to the shaft, and it should be uh, 17, 18 degrees, and, uh, or to the neck, I'm sorry, goes to the neck. And it should be 17 to 18 degrees. If it's more than that, then typically it's a slip. The only time that we would recommend an MRI is if you have a child who has internal rotation uh, pain with internal rotation, they have a widened physis, they have no slip, but they continue to have pain, and it's the right history, it's the right body habitus, you can get an MRI, and if there's edema around the physis on the MRI, then you would, uh, uh, then you would say it's a pre-slip, and you would recommend pinning for that too. On Perthes, we do an AP and frog leg lateral, but we're looking for different things. Typically, you're going to see lateral column uh, AVM before you see anything else. And what we're doing with the frog leg is making sure it reduces or it doesn't hinge. And we'll get more into that a little bit later. Uh, I wouldn't recommend an MRI. They're expensive. Uh, if you have a family just needs to know, then you can do an MRI. Or you can just have them come back in a couple months, work on range of motion and stretching, and then repeat the x-ray then. Okay. And so sound like... So for Perthes, you know, as far as the x-rays, it seemed like both both would get x-rays. You're looking for different things. We talked about Klein's line and different things like that. Uh, but as far as advanced imaging, it sounds like it's more relevant for the Skiffy. Uh, but with Perthes, uh, you can almost just monitor it versus getting the MRI immediately. Is that right? right. That's right. I mean, so for Perthes, it's more of a long long play game it's a more of an 18-month game as opposed to uh slip where you're need to kind of take care of it acutely to prevent an acute slip and so uh, you're going to be more aggressive with your imaging and advanced imaging with the skiffy than you would the perthes and just to get back on the uh southwick i don't know if i made that southwick single made it clear enough you just put a line down the physis a line 90 degrees to it and then a line uh through the neck and that angle should be uh less than 17 degrees and if it's more than that then it's uh a slip 
And that's really good to know. Anybody who's rotating on a pediatric uh, rotation, those those are some good, uh, I don't know, pimp questions is what everybody like to call them. Or, or you know, it's just <laughs> yeah. good to know when the attending bring up something about that. Um, so before we get too far into maybe like classification, what can you explain to us, like, what exactly are these uh, these diseases? Like, what is Skiffy? What is uh, leg calves perthes? So, so Skiffy, and nobody really knows why. We think it's kind of related and similar to Blount's, that there's just a, too much pressure on a physis. Uh, it's typically with Skiffy, it's during the adolescent growth uh, spurt or right before it. As you get the hypertrophic zone, kind of speeds up through that uh, physis, you have increased force, and it just is a shear that shears that uh, epiphysis off the metaphysis. Uh, for Perthes, it's more interesting because nobody really knows why. There's been several studies that look at hypercoagulable states to see if there was an uh, issue, whether it was uh, repeated stress. The most interesting idea, and you'll never be tested on this because, especially for boards, because it has to be non-controversial. When your, your epiphysis has a uh, different blood supply at different age. And it goes from uh, the anterior circumflex to the, uh, the artery through the ligamentum teres, through then the posterior circumflex. And they bridge sometime between four and seven. We know most kids with perthes are skeletally immature. And so one of the interesting ideas is that as these vessels are closing down and opening up to allow for more, more blood flow, there may be a time where all of them are closed for a brief period and the body just doesn't adjust correctly. And so therefore you get that insult in that AVN. Uh, it was kind of interesting to me because it made the most sense of, out of anything else, but it was only one article. Okay. Okay. So on, let's see, on Skiffy, uh, and this is just something that, you know, I remember hearing people kind of mention it when I was rotating on, on Pete's as well. Uh, I've seen it in a couple different papers and things like that. Uh, how does the, I think it's called the epiphyseal tubercle come into play with, with Skiffy? Oh, I haven't, uh, you, you got me on that one. See, y'all teach me stuff all the time. Okay. Okay. Scratch that. We'll, yeah, we'll move I, on. I was wondering where you're going with that. <laughs> All right. Scratch that. We'll, we'll move away from that. That, that, that will be edited out. Okay. All right. So now nah, you can leave it in, make people read. I mean, yeah, wrong yeah. I mean, true story. And, and like you say, all this stuff is, is, is controversial. You know, there's, there's a paper here and there that says this, this may be a theory of why these things happen. But like you say, it's some things are, are not as, as, uh, conclusive and they're not as high yield. It's just, just knowledge, right? It's just right, things right. That, that you may know. Um, so, okay. Can we talk about the different classification uh, systems uh, for both uh, the Skiffy? And, yeah. Well, uh, so we'll talk about Skiffy first. You know, there's uh, the two classifications that you're going to uh, think about commonly are stable and unstable and acute and chronic. And so stable is a basically a skiffy that people are walking on and unstable is a skiffy that they're not walking on acute is it's immediate and they're often unstable and chronic is it's been going on for several weeks 
and so some people use one week, some people, most people use two weeks for acute and chronic, and then the ability to walk on it is uh, stable and unstable. But you have to be careful because I've seen some kids walk in and have unstable. You get the AP and uh, frog blood gladder and they look tremendously different. And so you just got to think that uh, they're more unstable and, and they tend to have more pain, whereas the uh, stable skiffies tend to go on for a couple months before they seek treatment. For Perthes, they have uh, herring classification is the classification you're going to see the most. And with that, it's looking at the lateral column and how much height is in the lateral column. And so if it's 100%, it's a, a. If it's 100% uh, 50% of height, it's going to be a B. And then if it's below 50%, it's going to be a C. And with that, Herring came up with this uh, idea that all A's do well, all C's do bad. Uh, if you're young and you're less than six, you do well. If you're older than 10, you do bad. Everybody in between, uh, that's where you have your best outcomes for treatment. The real, the problem and the difficult thing with the herring classification is it's where it is at the end of fragmentation. And so it takes a long uh, time to get to the end of fragmentation where there's maximal collapse. And all of us want to do is try to keep it from getting as bad as possible. So when we're talking about that classification, a lot of times we're trying to intervene before it gets to that maximal uh, collapse. And so it's difficult to study, to say. Right. Okay. Um, and, and given, you know, we just kind of spoke about the classification systems, uh, herring, and then we also talked about stable versus unstable skiffy. How do we go into treating these patients? So what, you know, what is the, uh, the, the next step? Say we have a patient that comes in, they have a stable skiffy, you know, what are we going to do to treat this? Are we, you know, do we pin it? Do we, do we watch it? You know, how do we, how do we figure that out? So always uh, pin a stable hip, you know, and there's, when, when I was training, there was a rule, you never let them go home because they could, we were told they could go outside, fall off the curb and they, you just switched a, a stable slip to an unstable slip. This unstable slip has somewhere between five and up to 50% chance of AVN, depending on time. People talk about capsular releases and other things. We'll get into more into treatment. Uh, if that occurs, you can aspirate, you can release it, you can perforate the capsule to try to decompress it. But acute slips should be done uh, as soon as possible. And typically those kids are admitted immediately to the hospital and we do it the next day. Uh, if it's a stable slip, you know, we typically do one pin uh, it's very controversial about if you pin both hips uh, because there is an AVN rate uh, with just a pinning if you go out the posterior cortex. And so most people say if they have a metabolic disorder or they have are very younger, less than 10, then to go ahead and pin both hips. There's two reasons to less than 10. One is if you don't pin the other hip, they'll get a pretty significant leg length discrepancy. And two, you want to make sure that nothing happens to that side. There's also some literature that says if they have an acute slip, you want to pin the other side just in case they get an AVN on the good side or the bad side, they won't have any issues with the other one. I, I don't believe that. We just do patient education and tell them that one in, 
one in three uh, hips will, or one in three patients will have a contralateral hip uh, issue and just to kind of be mindful and come in as soon as possible. If they have an acute slip, most people will do just position the uh, leg. We don't do reductions. And then a lot of people do two screws. Some people do one screw because they say that, you know, one screw in the right position is better than two screws in an okay position. But for your boards and most tests, uh, you would say two screws. Right. Uh, and, that, and, that's, and that's for the skiffy. For Perthes, so the way I think about Perthes is this. Really, whenever Perthes is uh, going on, is the dead bones being taken away and new bones being laid down so it's soft. And it's kind of like Play-Doh. And so what you want to do is you want to maintain motion. If you put Play-Doh in your hand and you move it in every direction, you get a ball. Well, if you get stiff because you have fluid in your hip and you only move it back and forth, you get an egg. If you don't move it at all, it gets flat. And so those are the different outcomes for uh, Perthes. A round ball is good, lasts for a long time. An egg-shaped hip is okay. It lasts for until you're 40, 50, 60 years of age. Uh, flat hip does no good. And so everything we're doing is trying to contain that ball and maintain motion. And so if a child has significant limitations, they have significant abduction restraints, then we're going to try to work on stretching. We'll do Botox. We do adductor releases to try to maintain that motion. If you look at the x-ray and you notice something called a gauge sign, that's a divot in the lateral uh, column, that means it's starting to hinge. And typically, if we see that in a uh, child with Perthes, we will either want to do a varus osteotomy or a pelvic osteotomy to contain that sign or that hinge so that it maintains its motion. Okay, so let's just bring it back a little bit. Let's start, let's talk about the skivvies for, for a quick second. So, you know, at first when we were thinking about it, it was always described as like the cone slipping off the ice cream, but really it's the ice cream slipping off the cone. I mean, I'm sorry, it's the cone that moves in the, in the ice cream stays still per se. Right. And then so our, where, when you start and when you pin these, you're actually starting kind of on the anterior femoral neck and you're aiming posterior. Can you kind of talk a little bit about uh, about the directions of the slip and, you know, things to think about whenever you're going to pin these uh, hips? Yeah, and so the way I, I, I kind of do it is I'll point the kneecap straight up and down, and then I draw uh, lines every 30 degrees on the side of the thigh. And so you go 0, 30, 60, 90. And then I'll mark my femoral neck with fluoro on those lines, and so I have an idea of where my pin's going to go. And then you want to take your Southwick angle, and let's say it's a moderate slip, it's about 40, 50 degrees, you're going to go a little less than that on your side of your thigh. So you're going to go just a little bit above the 30 mark, and you're going to go anterior to posterior in line with your uh, femoral neck and just go down. Typically with these slips, you want to, your pin needs to be above the lesser troke because if your starting point is below the lesser troke, you're going to uh, have increased risk for uh, uh, iatrogenic fracture. If it's as long as it's above, you're fine. Mostly going to be on the anterior neck, and there's a ridge on the anterior neck or on the anterior uh, trochanter that right before the capsule inserts. That's a good starting point. You can feel it. You can feel it slide over into the capsule. You can feel it slide on the lateral, and then you'll find that uh, lateral ridge 
or the anterior ridge, and that's where you want to start your uh, your guide pin. With that, a lot of times I'll tap it a little bit because if you're pushing hard, especially on forward, it'll slide into the femoral capsule, and you'll get a little bit more medial than you want. Okay, and and you know when we look and we read it, I always talk about you want to avoid the pins or the screws being paced too superior laterally. Uh, you know, because that increases our, our chance of AVN. Um, how many, another, another question that we had is, how many threads do you typically want past the, um, the, the epiphysis? I know some, there's a typical number, you know, there's a, a lot of different uh, thoughts on that. But, you know, I guess coming from you, what is your, our main goal? So, so the main, main study that everybody quotes is a study out of San Diego. It occurred probably oh, 15, 16 years ago now where they used a pig model and they looked at the stability. And really the most stable one in that model was three threads on either side. And so some people talk about five over, some people talk about three in the epiphysis, but really the three threads on either side. And uh, then you can use a fully threaded screw that's, that was the most stable construct. Uh, typically, what I like to do is uh, just a couple tricks and tips and pearls. Whenever you're looking at your lateral, don't frog your leg, your leg out because it'll bend the pin. Keep it more just straight up and down until you get uh, something stronger on top of it. The second thing is when you're trying to get your guide pin in, if you're too posterior, too anterior, but you like your start point, put your uh, guide wire on reverse and it becomes like a K wire. And so the threads will push you back until the start of the hole. And then you can kind of drop your hand or raise your hand and you just punch it back and forth until you find your bone and then push it in on reverse and then take it off. And that'll let you kind of find your spots just a little bit easier. But yeah, three uh, threads on either side would be my standard answer. All right. And those little uh, little pearls like that, those those tips that you won't learn until you you've done something a few times, man, they they come in handy quite a bit. Um, and and, ju and just remember, they always come from failure. Makes sense. It makes total <laughs> sense. Um, and you know, I, when you really think, because like I say, I, I know when I was uh, uh, like a medical student trying to separate these two diseases, I always kind of got them confused, but this one makes a lot of sense once you know what the treatment usually is, is that you're going to pin it and you're trying to pin it so that it doesn't continue to fall off. And you want it to stay where it's at until the vice is closed. Once the vice is Correct. closed, no more slipping. So it makes perfect sense. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. And I, and I try to put my screw just, just another trick is put it right above the uh, posterior neck. And that way you have a strong surface to keep it from plowing. It's just one other thing. Okay, right on the, you say right on the posterior right. neck, trying yeah, to get just, that strong cow car there, like the strong, yep. yep, okay, yeah, and like, like you mentioned, that's some of the strongest bone, and uh, even uh, like a, adults, when you're trying to fix, uh, let me see what we're trying to fix, sometimes if you're trying to do like a femoral head, or that's like a femoral minimal, neck or something, femoral neck, yeah, exactly, that's minimally displaced, and you're just trying to pin it, you always try to catch that cow because there's a strong bone that can, can hold your screw, Absolutely. Uh, and something else that I saw come up from time to time, what, can you explain to us when and kind of what the modified done is and kind of when you would use, have to do that? Yeah. So for a long time, we didn't, we didn't do anything that the done procedure was an old procedure 
and when it came out, they had excellent results. Everybody tried to copy it and they had horrible results. And so everybody went away from it. So they all did extra capsular osteotomies like Southwick osteotomies for, because a lot of times these kids afterwards, once they're healed, they'll have impingement issues and they'll have pain and they can't, they have obligate external rotation. And so they're not super happy, especially if they're really active. And so all these procedures came about what do you do with a hip that's painful or impinging once the physis is closed? And so Don, when he came out with this osteotomy, he was like, this works great. Everybody tried it and got AVN. So it went away for about 20 years. Then with surgical hip dislocations, you take off the greater trochanter, it started coming back. And so basically what it is, is you take the, uh, you open up the capsule, you monitor the blood flow in the head while you're doing it. And typically you can see uh, one of the vessels and you do an osteotomy of the neck to get the uh, south lick angle back to normal. All right. I think it's always good to know, you know, all the techniques and, you know, that actually probably could be a possible uh, question that, that, may, that you may run across because I think it's becoming a little bit more popular. Um, and before we move to, to back to Perthes, uh, just to make it clear, I mean, what we're trying to avoid is AVN. Is that, is that. That's pretty, correct. And, yeah. and, and, and you want to try to avoid severe slip because Typically in severe slips, they don't do as well. Uh, also, we want to, with a moderate slip, they typically do well until their 50s. Uh, but total hips do so well now that, you know, people, uh, they, don't they don't tolerate as much. And so you may see them getting total hips when they're uh, younger in their 40s. But typically, if you're doing normal activities and you have a moderate slip, you should be able to keep that hip until you're – uh, 50s before you would need a total hip. The interesting thing is with impingement kind of coming up, the more severe the slip, the more anterior the screw is. We're seeing some cases where the screw head actually uh, hits the labrum. And so they're having labral issues from the screw after a skiffy. Oh, that's something to, to keep in mind. I, that's not even something I had thought about. Is there a clear, like non-controversial time where you should pin the other hip. Like if this person has like, you know, a metabolic disorder that you know of is, you know, is there a clear time where you say, okay, we should pin the other hip. Yeah. Non, uh, any metabolic disorder. So a patient with a thyroid issue are they're younger than 10. If they're 10 or younger, I would pin the other hip as well. Oh, that was a good one, Cody. I, that that was definitely high yield, right? So hyperthyroidism, I think I saw something about, a. Uh, like some kidney disorders as well. So yeah, yeah, good to keep in mind. Um, and, and the other question will come up, if you have a 10-year-old with a skiffy, you pin both hips, what should be your next study? It should be an endocrine workup. Right. Yeah. Right. Definitely high yield. I love hitting the high yield things. Yeah. Every <laughs> once in a while, somebody send us a message and say we helped them on, on some question. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. all right, great, great news. That's what we're trying to do. I could have uh, used y'all when I was in residency. I, I can use myself sometimes. I, <laughs> I'm still working on it all. We, we sit here and we do these shows, but we're still slowly piecing it all together ourselves. So it's helping us. It's helping uh, other people who listen. And I just appreciate everybody being a part of it, really. Uh, back to Perthes. Uh, we said that the, the key to Perthes is uh, containment. We're trying to keep uh, the, the we're trying to keep the femoral head 
uh, in where it should be. So we talked about casting and bracing and different things like that. Uh, when, I guess, when do you, or yeah, when do you consider maybe doing like osteotomies for these types of, uh, this type of pathology? So the, the, there's some relative indications and some absolute indications. Uh, the relative indications are some people are more aggressive with osteotomies uh, when you have a patient who's really active, who has a lot of pain with range of motion, who can't stretch, and they have a B or what they call a BC hip. It, when you're between ages six and eight and you have a, a, a very, like just above 50% or a BC hip, then that is an indication to do either a varus osteotomy or a pelvic osteotomy. The other indication uh, that most people use, it's not an absolute, is if you have a gauge sign where you have impingement. A gauge sign is where it looks like the lateral column is trying to squirt out the uh, lateral acetabulum. And so you'll see the femoral head come across. There'll be a small dip at the edge of the lateral acetabulum, and then there'll be a little kind of squirt of epiphysis hanging out to the side. And so what we'll do when we see that is we'll do a arthrogram. And when we, on that arthrogram, if, as you go into abduction, you'll see a medial dipole because the hip's not reducing under, it's hinging. It's called hinge abduction. When you see that, then that's an indication to do either a varus osteotomy or a pelvic osteotomy to provide containment. It's, when we say hinging, is that, is that similar to like impingement pretty much? Uh, it's, it's similar. Uh, it's, it is impinging. The lateral femoral head is impinging on the lateral acetabulum. And instead of the head rotating under, it's levering out. And so it, it is a form of impingement. It's a little different because it's not sliding in the hip joint. It's actually levering the whole hip out. And so when we see that, they really have a poor outcome if you leave it untreated. So that's why most people at that point will do an osteotomy for containment. And um, so big thing with this particular uh, pathology is trying to keep the femoral head contained. Uh, and uh, of course, if, if, the, if, the, if the femoral head is not where it needs to be and you got necrotic bone, you, you're walking around, you, you're, you're loading the joint, uh, it, it causes degenerative changes. So just the, on the natural progression of this, can, can you talk about just like the natural progression of this, kind of what's the best case scenario and what's the, I guess you could say the worst case scenario or kind of what this sometimes lead to? So and it's kind of like I was talking about earlier. You can think about the Play-Doh. You know, the more the ball moves around, or the Play-Doh moves around, the more of a ball it becomes. That typically occurs in younger patients, less than six or seven, who have minimal uh, lateral column collapse. And so it, they say if you're younger than five, you can have perthes and there'll be no issues. Uh, that six to eight group, they tend to have more problems, but typically we find them and they're better. And it's just the, the amount of weight. You know, the younger kids don't weigh as much and not putting as much force across a soft bone. And so they just don't do as, uh, they don't have as many problems. As you start getting older, especially the above eight up to 10 years old, and you have a lot of collapse on the lateral side, instead of that, that hip having good forward motion and they lose internal and external rotation, uh, it just pushes down and they have hinge abduction. Then you're kind of like all the force of that femoral head is right where that hinge is. And we know that surface area makes a difference with force. 
And so you're decreasing that surface area where that force goes across and they get pretty rapid arthritis and need uh, farther intervention. Most kids between six and eight, they end up with a B or a BC kind of lateral column. They end up with a, uh, a big or coxomagna or an egg-shaped hip. And that's because they, due to the swelling in the hip, they don't have as good abduction or internal and external rotation, but they have great flexion and extension. And with those, they'll have a little bit of a leg length discrepancy, and they have pretty good function up until around 56 years of age, and then they would need a total hip at that time. And I think that was a great overview as far as, you know, what our natural sequelae is from late cast perthes. Now, what about skiffy? You know, are these, do these patients later on come back with any, you know, signs of impingement? Or, you know, what are some of the kind of the natural uh, progression or, or some of the complications that patients can have from having, you know, a slip capital femoral epiphysis? So about if, if there are Southwick angles 50 and above, then more than likely they're going to come back with some type of impingement. And so what you'll see is they have obligate external rotation. They don't like it as much. They typically have pain when they do a lot of activities. And when you do uh, acetabular impingement, femoral acetabular impingement test, they have a lot of pain. A lot of times you'll see a little spur on the femoral neck. And with that, they're impinging. And so that's, those are the patients that are getting more indications to do modified done procedures because more than likely, if you leave it that they can do most things, they can't do a lot of hip flexion or a lot of significant activity. So, but if they're more active, those people are either going to get an osteotomy or a total hip earlier rather than later. All right. And boom, I think you just helped us do it again, Dr. Gonzalez. I think we just talked over most of the high yield top, uh, topics on Perthes and Skiffy. So I hope this really helps, helps all of our listeners out a lot. Uh, again, I appreciate you, Dr. Gonzalez, for coming on and, and, and spending your time with us and going over this in such great detail. Uh, before we go, we always ask our, our guests, uh, is, is there a way for our listeners to reach out to you if they wanted to? This could be a social media tag. This could be your email address or your website or anything like that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I always love hearing from people and hearing questions. That's why, you know, like I said, I went to ag academics and uh, it helps me learn as well. So if anybody has any questions or there's any comments or you can contact me at my email address. It's my work email. It's Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, uh, period, Gonzalez, G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S, at lcmchealth.org. Perfect. All right, Dr. Gonzalez, uh, we, we have some pretty active listeners, so you might you might get something from that. But no, once again, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you spending the, the time with us. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And like I say, this is something that I always have to think to myself, like, all right, which one is it? I just I just get get them confused. And I think we did a really great job of just breaking it down and making it simple for everyone. Um, yeah, yeah, if I could just say one thing, too, yeah. as, as you start thinking about stuff, uh, anything, tumors, peas, things like that. If you just break it down by age and location and symptoms, typically you'll get it right most of the time. So I really appreciate y'all asking me to come on. I enjoy this kind of thing. So uh, if there's anything else y'all ever need, just let me know. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Nailer Ortho podcast. Uh, I hope you guys learned a lot. We learned a lot um, just making this episode. And of course, we're listening to this. We always just pick up some more things. Uh, if this your first time listening to our podcast please check us out on 
YouTube at Nailed It Ortho. We have some good things in store for you guys and a big announcement next week. So stay tuned and of course, subscribe until next time.